need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheBringer.com. Joining me on the other line, as always, it's Andy Greenwald. Chris got a little raspy in your voice like Jadakiss. I like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. This is a, a Locks tribute podcast. Uh, Andy, on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the cancellation of Glow, the first mm-hmm. episode of The Good Lord Bird, uh, the latest episode of The Boys, and then the second half of the show is my conversation with Muso Kwanga and Ryan Hun from the Stadio podcast on Ringer FC, our soccer podcast, because I wanted to talk to them about All or Nothing, Tottenham Hotspur, the Amazon docuseries about Tottenham from this year that is just one of the most amazing things you'll see on TV this year. So before we get into it, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. All right, Andy, we're back. You're coming in hot today. I can feel it. It's been a minute since you got some tweets off before a show. <laughs> Hold on, let me take a sip of my polyclonal cocktail. One second. <laughs> mm. I feel good. Yeah. Look, look Chris. Is um, this, do you feel better than you did 20 years ago? That's a great question. Um, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Do you? Absolutely not. No, I was thinking... Terrible. I was thinking about something that happened uh, five years ago recently. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, was I ever that young? Like, imagine like waking up in, and just feeling like things might be okay. Um, the news is bad, man. Yeah, the news is really bad. And so obviously anything that we talk about, whether it's... And, and I don't think we can pretend that this, po- this podcast or arts and culture in general exists in some kind of a, a bubble behind a plexiglass shield, if you will. Uh, shouts to Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. And it's affecting how we are processing news. It's affecting how we're processing shows. And I think it's worth talking about. Um, yeah, for sure. That's a really, uh, I mean, like, that, that's a great point. I, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've spent more time on Twitter. And, they, and I spent a lot of time on Twitter, let's be honest. But yeah. I've spent more time on Twitter this weekend than any time over the last five years. And that's and, astonishing. And so this isn't... Pod Save America, they they do a great job, and uh, they and we don't want to step in their lane. And so, like on the scale of things that I'm actually like existentially furious about, um, the fact that my kids can't go to school, but this jackass can take a joyride in a big beep beep truck around a hospital while being highly infectious. Yeah, like that's actually what I'm mad about. But look, just because I rented a Jeep Wrangler and did a couple of donuts outside of a Kaiser Permanente doesn't mean you have to make fun of me. It was a party limo. 
with an unused, unhygienic pole in the middle of it. Um, what I'm mad about today was this news that just broke as we were about to record, which is that Netflix is using the cover of COVID to cancel season four of their comedy series, Glow. Now, all the caveats, right? Like TV shows come and go all the time. And I think I've often preached a kind of, you know, a, a, a little bit more pragmatism and like, let's appreciate what we got as opposed to what we didn't because this is a business and blah, blah, blah. This one's getting to me. And it's getting to me for a number of reasons. One is the aforementioned, you know, steroid-fueled psychosis that I'm currently experiencing. The other is they did it dirty. You know, I mean, they renewed the show with great fanfare for a fourth and final season. Season three, with that knowledge, did not end with any kind of... Um, Finality. Uh, Conclusion, yeah. yeah. And I think because it aired while I was in production last year, we didn't get to talk about it much, but Glow is just one of those shows that I always love watching and has always impressed and surprised me. So I was very much looking forward to seeing to seeing more of it. They've done it dirty from the beginning. We've had Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch on the show before, the showrunners. And despite critical acclaim and Emmy nominations, they've been kind of jerked around in a manner I think Netflix jerks a lot of their shows around where they don't share any data or information with them. And... For as much as you hear like, oh, there's been a writer's room for season five going from the second the show premiered, not always the case. Like they mm -hmm. really didn't know season to season. And so getting this, you know, this, this final season commitment is a big deal. But the thing that makes me a little bit crazy, Chris, is when these big corporations, and it's not just Netflix, because I think a lot of companies have been doing it and will continue to do it, but they are claiming a, this global pandemic as the reason for why they have to cut costs and shut down a, a, a not very expensive show that was already, I believe, if not in production and pre-production when They had the already shot hit. the first episode of the season. So let me read you a small headline from earlier in the summer. I'm sure there are more recent articles talking about this. But this is from Vox. This is by uh, Peter Kafka, July 16th. I guess it's from Recode, which is through Vox. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has been great for Netflix. The streaming service added another 10 million customers in the second quarter of the year. So I'm not saying this is the same thing as Jeff Bezos making an extra $10 billion over the last four months and not giving anyone health care. But come on. Come on. Like well, what gets hurt here? They can afford to finish this season. They can afford to do it. And I have a lot of respect for the people over there. We spent a podcast last week talking about Bella Bajaria taking over on the creative side and how that could be a good thing for the creative community. I'm a person in the world who is developing TV shows. I would love to go into Netflix and have a meeting someday. So I'm not pretending that I don't have skin in this game, but I have to say that this just seems like total bullshit. It's so bullshit. Here, here's the from the deadline report today about the cancellation of Glow. Over the past seven months, Netflix, which is a studio on the series, which means it's not, they don't buy it from Warner Brothers or Sony or right. something and put it on. This is Netflix is the studio. Netflix, which is a studio on the series, had been working on ways to get the show back into production. Shot entirely in Los Angeles, which has proven to be one of the more challenging locations to get large-scale productions back up and running, Glow faced its own unique challenges with the physical requirements of wrestling, a focal point of the show, that make it high-risk to produce safely during COVID. That includes physical contact, heavy breathing, and exertion, which are required for wrestling but should be avoided during the pandemic because of the danger of spreading the virus. So... 
that feels like it came from Netflix, frankly. I mean, not that seems like something that was given to, to Deadline as a reason for this. And the fact that they shot the first episode back in the spring makes me wonder whether or not it's a little bit more nuanced in the way you're putting it. Although I do think Netflix has now canceled three series, including The Society, which I was quite a fan of, which also seemed to think that they were about to go back into production in Atlanta, I believe. And so do you think that this is a case of Netflix getting to cancel things that they were unhappy with in the first place? You do. Yeah. I mean, I think that you could ask any of our listeners. I think this is happening in workplaces all over the country and all over the world. People are using this as cover to make decisions they might have been about to make anyway, which we can debate the merits of, you know, case by case. I think that to, in terms of the specific production demands of the show, I, that's serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to diminish that safety and treating this virus seriously and taking care of cast and crew and everyone involved. Clearly, that doesn't matter for some institutions in American life, but I'm glad that it matters in Hollywood to the degree that it does. But I also just sort of reject this idea that just because they couldn't figure out a way to get back into production in Los Angeles during this specific window, the show's done. It doesn't really track. I mean, I understand well, that they're no. They're that's windows, what I don't understand. Yeah, they're holding deals. Like you do have to, you do have to commence production on things within a certain time frame or you lose the actors or you lose mm-hmm. the talent. You can't just hold them and pay them forever. Although, by the way, Netflix could. I, I'm not arguing that they should, but they definitely could. But like Alison um, Brie or Betty Gilpin or Mark Maron might have like a movie yeah. lined up next year and they have to be done by a certain point, right? Yes, but you could also say, we are pressing pause on this. And a show like this that, you know, I, I don't, I do think it has a, a good spirit and like they seem to like working together Say you're going to do it again later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, leave the door open. And maybe that, that is something that can happen here. But it, it kind of bums me out that this is, you know, look, they're, they're, Glow is, doesn't live or die on being a poster child for a certain type of storytelling. But it is, at least in my experience watching shows over the last 10 years, it did have a very special lane in terms of its uh, female storytelling the perspective of its plot lines and characters and its commitment to telling different sorts of stories with different sorts of actors in front of the camera telling them. Mm-hmm. Those shows should be protected. They should be protected and they should be priority for these companies, even if, you know, the the numbers make more sense for a, you know, another $200 million Michael Bay movie or Chris Hemsworth action film or whatever else the right. money is I for. Mean, you know I mean, Netflix is I certainly think- throwing their change around everywhere. I mean, they're yeah. buying up movies for tens of millions of dollars. So you're right. It doesn't seem like this is a financial decision per se. I do wonder whether or not it's something with, hey, there's the window, the window is closing. I, and what I don't understand is why, uh, I can understand with the society, those are supposed to be high school kids. Right. It ends on a cliffhanger. So the momentum of the show is sort of dependent there on on answering the questions of the first season. And if those kids get two years older, A, it's a pretty young show, so who knows if anybody's going to still be thinking about it in two years. And B, they're going to look pretty different in a couple of years, or at least they'll right. get older. Netflix, uh, Glow doesn't seem to have that problem. And Glow is a period piece, so you're not like worried about like continuity changes. And it's also it's obviously a labor of love for a lot of the people who are making it I can imagine that they would be open to coming back in 18 months to finish it off. So it is strange that this the finality of a lot of these decisions I don't get. Sadly, too, it would seem since Netflix is the studio on this, the idea of it getting picked up by Hulu or picked up by somebody else no. is slim. 
Absolutely not, because part of the value in Netflix picking things up when they've been the the saver that before, when they've offered the life raft to shows yeah, that right. have been canceled, for them, they they wouldn't do it if they couldn't also have the back catalog, so to speak, right? What's valuable to them if they save a show is that they have the entirety of it for their library. They have the entirety of it. So why sure. would anyone else pick up a show that they would only have limited rights, first-run broadcast rights to in the case of Glow? It doesn't make any sense. Last th- two things on this point. Um, the thing about wrestling and proximity, yes. But this show has gotten to be just increasingly less and less about wrestling. You could do an entire fourth season without showing them in the ring. And I think it would still be a successful show. That's obviously not something that they wanted to discuss or a cut they wanted to make, but you could. Two, can somebody please give Mark Maron a break? I know he's a very successful person and he's working through stuff and his podcast is amazing, but I love his performance on the show. And I think it's a, a crime that we won't get resolution for him and for it, especially after the year that he's had. And just in general, I just want to like put a little put a little tab on this for this moment and for something that I think, you know, hopefully we'll talk about going forward. This is a business. Everybody knows that. This isn't what is it? They don't they don't call it show friends, they call it show business. People still say that because it's true. It happens all the time. It happens on every production, even the happy ones. They're they're dust-ups and disappointments and people leave angry and resent resentful. I know that Netflix at its core is a tech company fixated on Wall Street growth. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. We've talked about that. But it's a huge bummer because y- y- there should be room within that to do some creative good. And they'll argue that they do. And, you know, come this time next week, we'll probably be celebrating some other show that could only have made it on Netflix that put something worthwhile or interesting or thought-provoking artistic into the world. But you have so much money. You could finish the show. You know, they could do it and they chose not to. And that's why I'm annoyed today. No, that makes sense. I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that you say that at the end because I was watching Good Lord Bird, which we can get into now. Mm-hmm. And it's on Showtime. Uh, obviously, it stars. It was co-written and co-created by Ethan Hawke with a guy named Mark Richard, who's like a, a I, think, I believe, a poet uh, and a writer. It's based on Jim McBride's 2013 National Book Award winning novel. And um, this isn't really about Showtime per se, but I was thinking about whether, you know, you know within the within the scope of how we think about where we watch television. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying in the beginning where I spent so much time on my phone this weekend kind of like getting news updates is the transition you make mentally when you're getting off of one screen and getting onto another screen and Mm -hmm. making space for something that necessarily requires a little bit of attention because they've, they've invested a lot of, of care into what they're showing you. And I don't know. I mean, Something like Good Lord Bird, which I thought was honestly great. It's sad to see stuff get kind of not remarked upon because of this, it, almost the state of the world, but also the state of our attention spans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, how many episodes is this miniseries? Um, I believe it's six or eight. I can't remember. It, it is a particularly hard moment. And we were texting about this. And let, let me say at the start, I was, I really was really impressed by this show. And I'm 
glad we're going to talk about it. And I really encourage people to seek it out and watch it. And we didn't even talk about Comey rule last week, which I mean, it, which is crazy that we just, that, that's just, just something that happened and it was a blip. And I think you and I didn't I, watch it for the reasons can't we didn't do watch it. it. Yeah, right. I can't do it. But but this one, there there is, at this moment in time, in fall 2020, and, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing you a little bit here, if you'll allow it, there is maybe no harder hang than the 60-minute premiere episode of something. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It's not, to be specific, it's not the same as sitting down and watching a 90, 120-minute movie at this moment. We're not saying that like our attention spans are so broken that we can't do that. There is something that just feels particularly challenging about entering a new world, learning the ropes, learning the shape of it, the rhythms of it, how to watch something, Mm -hmm. devoting that much time because the difference between 44, 46 minutes and 58, 60 minutes is enormous just in terms of pacing and Isn't that wild? It's uncanny. Yeah. And then I think one of the reasons is, is because around the 50 minute mark, our brains are saying there is more to come. And yet this is still the beginning. This is still just throat clearing. And so now we're just waiting for the, I mean, one of the running gags in this, and we're going to turn to our, to a conversation of the content in a moment, because I think the show really merits it. But one of the, the jokes and the show has jokes, which is one of the things I really like about it. I think the book did as well, is that Ethan Hawke playing John Brown, when he says grace or delivers a prayer before eating. He just goes he can on sometimes on. talk for like two or three hours and yeah. the food gets cold. There is that feeling when you hit minute 50 that we're just waiting for the sermon to end because it could end anywhere. They want to show us something. They want to leave us on a note. But like, we already know that this isn't a journey. This isn't a finite point in the journey other than the fact that we've run out of road mm-hmm. for the first one. You know what I mean? And that Do you think that, that has something feels. to do with the, uh, this was going to be in any other time in history, this would have been a movie? sense like the the storytelling i think is quite entertaining in good lord bird but there is something about the hybrid nature of it where it feels incredibly cinematic it doesn't it doesn't have the feeling of television episodic storytelling that mm. we're kind of moving through these things and explaining who these people are and there's a lot of voiceover narration there's a lot of a ton of characters who are introduced not with close up and explanation of who they are but rather in these sort of long long lens shots of, you know, of a huge, beautiful landscape. The, the, mm-hmm. the scenery in this show is incredible. But, like, there's got to be, what, a dozen people get introduced and dispatched with just in this first episode alone. Yeah, and I think the other thing about it, I'm, I, I was, I, as you were talking, I was, I was racking my brain trying to think if recently um, closed-ended miniseries have felt different uh, as they, when they're, delivered week by week as opposed to binged versus a show like, you know, whether it's Better Call Saul or now The Boys, which is going week to week, but it's also a longer game. They're going to run from, you know, multiple seasons. And I, my brain went to Watchmen, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I don't want to compare. I mean, Watchmen is, you know, an incredible achievement. Um, one of the reasons why it might feel different, and I don't know if it's because, you know, Damon still has the old broadcast TV DNA in, built into him. And Good Lord Bird is, is is very different for a number of reasons, but one of which being it's not only based on a book, but you know you can spoil it on Wikipedia if mm-hmm. you're if you're really watching it for the plot. Well, you get but it is one of those, the first step in the first scene. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This is one of those projects that begins at the end and says, "Now we're going to get there," mm-hmm. and it just 
it's it's like a car trip. You know, it, you you kind of you know you're driving to Tucson, but you've never driven there before. And so, how long is it going to take? No, and, and it's going to be Tucson. I think I think it's telling one big story, whereas Watchmen, while telling one big story, mm. those episodes felt incredibly tight and incredibly thematically coherent. And you had the feeling when you started one that okay, this is going to be the episode about Gene Smart's character. And these are the storytelling devices that he's using with these answering machine messages that she's leaving. And there is a certain steadiness and creativity to the guidance of the audience through the episode. I think there's also something going on here that I don't know if it's specific to Showtime or uh, we can point to other channels slash services. I think Showtime is just so, I think they're, they're very canny. I think they run a, they run a good shop. You know what I mean? They, they know what a Showtime show is almost uniformly. And when they vary from it, whether it's with the Twin Peaks reunion, whether it's with like Jesus and Marrow, mm-hmm. they make pretty smart choices with their aberrations from the norm, which get them what they need from it. And, you know, in terms of Twin Peaks, it got a lot of critical eyeballs and a lot of attention uh, for the time that it was on. For Jesus and Marrow, it's like, oh, I never thought that I, that, Showtime would have a show aimed at younger people, you know, mm-hmm. or being part of like the weekly conversation in that way. So that was cool and exciting. Um, but with projects like this, like, I, so again, we're going to talk about it. I promise. We're not just going to talk about talking about it. But the the bona fides are really strong because it's not just based on, you know, this award-winning novel. It's not just Ethan Hawke as auteur in television for the first time. Blumhouse Television co-produced it. So that's a pretty big concern these days as well. In some ways, it reminds me of Escape at Danamora last mm-hmm. year. In that's that, a really good shout. That's it, that's a really good comparison. I, I, with that, I was like, why is this on Showtime? And also, who else was bidding to make this? Like, what other service would this be on? So why does it exist? And I don't think it exists, with all due respect to the people who made those shows, and Escape at Danamora was amazing. Once I got to it, which was not during the time we spoke about it on the podcast, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to articulate here. No one, I don't know who they think is going to watch these week to week, but because they're Showtime, they're going to put them on week to week. And what they are instead are their markers, their flags planted, and they're in the Showtime soon to be CBS slash Paramount plus expanded universe library. They're high quality things, and I do think their their tail is longer, right? Like oh, I think yeah. this once is- once this whole thing is available. This will be something that people will, and judging by the first episode, should invest in and watch. And, and Ethan Hawke will 100% get nominated for an Emmy for this. As he should. Yeah. So As we he should. Just, yeah. I mean, we can talk a little bit about the show itself. Um, did, did, did you get that a little bit of that like 2014 feeling of, wait, how does this exist? Like, it, I feel I know that way paper, two or three times a week when I'm watching TV now. I mean, right. this is what I'm saying. Do, do you get that like Ethan Hawke is playing John Brown for, for, for many hours on TV? Like yeah. we've just kind of lost perspective. Jeff Daniels played James Comey last week and like nobody, I mean, he was noticed. He was on Bill's pod. People have talked about it. But Billy Ray made a James Comey miniseries and it's just another thing that goes in the shelf of stuff that we are asked to pay attention to on a week-to-week basis. I don't know if... I, I, the human brain, man. Like, can we comprehend all this stuff? Ethan Hawke was fucking incredible in this episode. And I, I was like, this is a career change, like defining performance from Ethan Hawke. Like, I don't yeah, think I've I, ever seen him this good or this different from, from a not, not in a long time, at least. And, um, you know, it's clearly a labor of love for him. And I think that 
I was almost shocked by how I, you know, there was, I've, I saw great pieces about it. Ethan Hawke obviously had a, you know, huge profile in the New Yorker. I don't know what I'm asking for. I don't know. Maybe this is actually residual from not going into the office, not seeing my friends at bars, not going out to dinner and saying like, what are you guys watching? Oh my God, do you see Ethan Hawke and the good Lord Birdie's incredible. But it does feel like I watch it, it goes, in, it goes into the shoebox and then I put it back on the shelf. Like that's it. Yeah, I think that's a bummer. I th- and I, I think you're right. I do think that's the moment more than the than the miniseries itself. I think I was prepared to, to talk about this in some ways after we talk about the most recent episode of The Boys, but I can retrofit my take, which is basically because of this moment, because of this specific this week, this month, this year, I'm struggling with glib or not fully human interpretations of confrontations with the larger moment. Mm -hmm. And what I truly appreciated about the show, and I think it deserves to be called out because I described this a moment ago as like Ethan Hawke's auteur coming out party. Generally, when actors have auteur coming out parties, they are slavishly devoted to the actor. Mm -hmm. And they are nothing, uh, not nothing, but I don't mean to be reductive, but generally actors like to be noble and they like to be heroic and they like to give themselves the big speeches. Now, John Brown definitely has the big speeches and it's the showiest part without question. But there's a tone at work here that again, I think is taken from the book that I don't think either of us have read, but it is slyly funny. It is very, very aware of the very unique role John Brown played in American history as this self-appointed race savior, basically. And for people who don't know, he was a radical abolitionist who basically declared war on slaveholding states and slaveholding people with his... 21 sons, that's what Wikipedia told me, in tow. Uh, I don't think they were all with him, but he had a lot of them, and there were a lot of them in the first episode as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Should we power rank them? I, I would, maybe after we see a few more next week, because I think there's also, <laughs> I, I just, you've heard I know, with a sister. Owen sister is Amy definitely Beckham. LeBron, you know. Friedrich, more more like, you know. Yeah, like wait, kind LeBron of, or like, Bron- he, He's brawny, right? <laughs> that's true. He, uh, so... So the, the the tone is just, it's a really hard thing to do. But instantly, you know that you're not only in the hands of people who have given this a lot of thought and are going to show you something that you possibly haven't seen before. But one of the low-key best parts about it is Albert Hughes directed this. And Albert Hughes with his brother famously directed um, Menace to Society, right? Mm-hmm. And Dead Presidents. This has a kineticism and a vibrancy and a contemporary, contemporaneous or contemporary kind of feel that really suits it. I don't think it's glib. It's not exactly like Tarantino, Django Unchained, kind of, you know, putting Rick Ross over. No, it's closer to Charles Portis. Period. It's, it's closer to like true great Coen brothers kind of. In, in terms I, of the I, tone, yeah. but, but, yeah. The, but the way it's shot is oh, yeah. bright and kind of and kinetic and engaging and not reverential, much like the tone itself. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's a really good marriage between all those things. And it plunges us into a moment, you know, and I think this is what the, the real opportunity of, of TV at this time is, that is pretty unfamiliar. It's not really, I mean, generally when things get into the Civil War, it's that era, it's one side or the other, or it's the war, right? Mm-hmm. It's not how gully things got right before and how vicious the lines were drawn. And of course they were. I don't mean to be sound reductive, but there's something 
there's something happening on the show um, in the way that it treats this kind of uh, combustible moment that might make it challenging viewing since we're living in a combustible moment or it yeah, might suit I, it. And, I, definitely and, and, and found, I definitely found myself saying, you know, I, I think that it was like a very good class in school where it starts out and maybe you're being a little bit obnoxious and you're saying, you know, I, I think I got this, you know, and then yeah. 20 or 30 minutes in, you're like, ah, shit, this is actually quite insightful. I was, I was going to ask you because, you know, I, w- I was sort of curious whether you felt like the only purpose of period pieces at this point is to tell us something about our contemporary moment because it right. does feel that way. And I think a lot of shows that have come out this year, um, Lovecraft and, and several others that feel like they were made for the moment that we're in somehow. Mm-hmm. And even if they are, even if they're about a different time, some of them are a little bit more self-consciously that way. And, you know, Good Lord Bird is something that I think that Ethan Hawke has been working on for years. But I think what it essentially says is how... Um, how present the, the the sort of themes of Good Lord Bird are in any moment in America rather than just this moment. It wasn't perfectly timed. It was just timed. And that's, this is the country we live and we live with people who, we live among people who have just absolute and total conviction in their beliefs. Yeah. And when thrown up against people who have the opposite beliefs and the equally held convictions, you get what you get. You know, Especially and, if they have swords. Yes, right. And uh, I just thought that there are moments in this where especially the Jeb Stewart confrontation where he's just sort of like, you're under arrest, essentially. <laughs> he's just like, nope, I, I, do not, I do not recognize this state or this country's law. And, and Jeb Stewart is like, hashtag law and order. Yeah. <laughs> it, it goes great. I think um, I, I agree with you. And I think that um, one of the reasons why I appreciate it and appreciate it in this moment is, you know, I, I don't want to wrap my arms too largely around things, but one of the things that that the events of this year has taught me and taught a lot of people was just how limited my education was, um, particularly about this country that I live in. And um, I was talking to someone about this over the weekend and talking about how like Reconstruction after the Civil War, where slavery had been abolished, but systemic racism was rewritten into the you know, the, the, the DNA of everything that came afterwards. I think I had pretty good education. I thought I did. And I went to a good school and went to a good college. I didn't know anything about this, anything about about how any of this happened, not just John Brown, but specifically about the time of reconstruction, which is after the John Brown thing. But John Brown is part of it too. I, everything I heard was pretty didactic, right? Like it was, John Brown was a, was a good guy who was a good guy before everyone was a good guy. Mm -hmm. And here's why. Um, and it makes me glad that a show like this is made. And I hope that more things are made about, about reconstruction or about these other periods of American history that are real and vital that don't get covered. And it, it does help put things, and I'm sorry to kick a very, very dead horse again, but it really underscores why the now DOA project of Confederate was just such an insanely dunderheaded idea. And for people who don't remember, this was, uh, Dan Weiss and David Benioff announced that they were going to make this show after Game of Thrones for HBO that was going to imagine a different, an alternate version of the United States where the South won the war. And it's like, why are we so able to jump to these, these speculative, sexy, violent, weird, imagined futures or pasts or whatever, or presents, when we have all this actual stuff that we could yeah. talk about and illuminate? Right. Now, all this is to say, 
Good Lord Bird starts with one of my favorite epigraphs I've ever seen on a show. It's a little bit different than Fargo's, right? Where it's like, this is a true story. Most of it actually happened. So I don't mean to say that this is doing, this is a re-educational show that is, you know, writing wrongs that, 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 that our Quaker schools didn't give us in the 90s, but it's doing something really cool and worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, the only, I also thought it was worth shouting out, um, it was worth shouting out Joshua Caleb Johnson, who plays Onion slash Henry slash Henrietta, um, mm-hmm. who's the, the POV character and the narrator of the show. And at times kind of reminds me of of uh, like Linda Mance's narration from Days of Heaven or something or, or you know, Sissy Spacek from Badlands. But at, at other times has like that really acerbic, funny, in, you know, knowing uh, knowing tone to the to the narration. I thought he was incredible in this. And the only thing I would say is I'm sure this was true to life and true to what it was like back then is it's just like they're just it's a hundred pages of the book in the first episode, apparently. Like I like I said, we didn't read the novel, but I would love to now. But they they grind through te- some text in this first episode. <laughs> and the objective of the John Brown uh war party essentially changes like multiple times throughout the episode, and there's a different person that they're trying to defeat. Uh they don't slow down. They don't do introductory scenes. Everything is more or less shot from the POV of, of this Joshua Caleb Johnson character. So you're not really getting the omniscient third person. And here's this person as they walk into camp mm-hmm. and someone says, excuse me, general. And he says, well, this is exactly what I want. And because all of a sudden we're just fighting a Pate's sharpshooters or somebody else has shown up who's being paid for by uh, East Eastern seaboard sort of philanthropists and, and then there's like three people who clearly Ethan Hawke just just called, cold called on his iPhone yeah. and was like, do you want to be on my show, dude? Wyatt Russell and David Morris, and I think Steve Zahn is on it later, you know, I mean, in the season. It's it's dope. I I I I think it's, I'm so excited to keep watching it. It's It, it was just, uh, it, it's interesting to watch this weekend, I can, guess. Can we also just say, I mean, we could keep saying it as we cover the show going forward, but Ethan Hawke, man, what a, what a legend. Yeah, man. He... Guys, he goes for it. He really goes for it. And let me just say, this is kind of a humble brag, but also do want to put it out there. The thing that he does early in this episode where he becomes so worked up that he is uh, spitting everywhere and the camera catches it, you know. I've seen him do that before on stage. So Uh this is Ethan Hawke. Is that in Arcadia or what? Coast of Utopia, Lincoln Center, 2009. By the way, I I did want to ask you like, how much could we push this? This podcast is just us old pals talking about stuff we like because I would love to do a Coast of Utopia podcast because, man, that was crude up. That was Ethan Hawke. Do you guys, I mean, is there you, room for us? Are you putting yourself up to host the like the Zoom reunion of Coast of Utopia? I mean, I okay, they haven't asked me. That's true. But, but would I be willing to do it? There's a big biography coming out, man. Did, really? Yeah. I didn't write that. That's great. <laughs> Listen, do you, do you know? Like, no offense, so, I cannot imagine you. you I, 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 like, I had no knowledge. Guys, what, I'm leaving what the if pod I to write you? a Stoppard biography. No, what it, guys, I wrote a Stoppard biography while doing the pod. Cozy Utopia, a three-part theatrical <laughs> epic he did not. written by Tom Stoppard about Russian intellectuals. Your boy saw all three plays in one epic Sunday, morning, afternoon, and evening. But uh-huh. the cast, dude, it's Brian O'Byrne, Billy Crudup, Ethan Hawke, our man Josh Hamilton from 
one of our favorite films, Kicking and Screaming, that we recently spoke about. Martha Plimpton, David Harbour. Yes. Come on. It was great. Anyway, but Hawk, this guy just, it's kind of amazing. Like, he's never not worked. He's always writing. He's writing novels. He's doing theater and whatever. And what's kind of amazing is that he's found another gear in his 50s because First Reformed was, you know, one of the best movies and best performances of recent yes. times. Yeah. And it's a it's a big glow up, honestly, to be like, I can do this like this. Because for all the abilities that Ethan Hawke has had over the years, capital A, acting like this, that's not what you went to Hawke for, right? No, I think that in the that first limited, half but- of his career, he was obviously almost um, handcuffed to his role as like a kind of generational avatar. Right. And I think that all changed for me, at least with Training Day. And then he becomes this incredible character actor in some ways. Chris, so much changed for you with Training Day. That was a very important film for your life. Incredibly important movie. And since then has done, you know, has made some of my most beloved films like the, the the before movies, um, but especially the the middle-aged ones and the before sunrise and, yeah. and sunset and midnight. And, um, you know, I, I think recently, I mean, even his appearance in boyhood and, and it's interesting to see Alar Coltrane in good Lord bird as one of yeah, John Brown's point. sons. Like he's just doing incredible work. You mentioned first reformed. And I think that he's a guy who's kind of mastered the game. You know, and it's a real inspiration because I think that it's easy to see people kind of just um, do stuff for the sake of doing it, do stuff because they have an overall, do stuff because they have a first look, do stuff because Mm -hmm. they wanted to try TV, do stuff because they didn't want somebody else to make this thing that they wanted to make. And, you know, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. There's, There's plenty of passion projects that fall a little flat for me. But to see something that he is clearly pouring his entire soul into, and it actually is entertaining, is fucking great. So shout out to Ethan Hawke, man. I only hope that you will be as generous when it comes to your coverage of my passion project, which is a competing biography of British playwright Tom Stoppard, due to be published around 2025. (laughs) You heard it here first. I think this imminently being published Tom Stoppard biography may have the the jump on you. but No, yes, chronologically. Yeah. But I'm going to just, I'm going to take the... uh, I'm just going to take the opposite opinion on so each I one figure, of his works. I figure we'll probably hit the boys significantly next Monday's show because that will be after the finale airs. Yeah, but, um, I, but, but I have, I have some Let's I have talk some about stuff. some exploding heads. Listener? Uh-huh. I struggled. Did you? I struggled. and With, with which part? Watching porn in the day? Daytime? While the sun's out? That, I mean... I guess that's the you now should be seen as the universal symbol of I'm about to kill myself. I thought they were defending a practice that has, you know, been in the shadows, not literally, for far too long. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I just had a hard time with it. And this is why I started the podcast saying, like, I, I you know, I, I, we have to talk about the the elephant that is currently loose in the hospital. I'm sorry, John <laughs> Mulaney. Maybe horse is a better metaphor. But when we're talking about any of this, like, I, I, I don't feel particularly settled at the moment. I don't think anybody does. And because of that, I I really struggled watching a show that I generally enjoy. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I think we said that from Jump. Like, I, I don't watch The Boys necessarily for its meta commentary or, you know, biting satire of our capitalist lives. 
I enjoy it. I enjoy the camaraderie and the characters and the audacity of it. And for whatever reason, I found it very discomforting to watch this episode, partly because of the exploding heads. Mm-hmm. But maybe the exploding heads are just part of the larger thing, which is the cavalier attitude towards violence and death. And then trying to have it a little bit both ways with having something to say about it all felt strained this week. I think they've had successful moments in the past doing that, but and I would be very curious if other people agree with me or if people who watch this in you know a year's time or whatever feel the same way. But for whatever reason, I, I struggled with that this week. I think that the feeling that you're describing and you you brought your own imagery to it with the various animals in the hospital. I would say it's almost like um, that vision of it's like a hot day and somebody turns like a fire hydrant on and and you get in the fire hydrant. And what it is now is the fire hydrant and the water coming out of it. That's all the that's all the content. That's sports being back all the time, constantly, mm-hmm. but sometimes getting delayed because of COVID and shows coming and going and just. All of a sudden, you have 12 hours of something to watch, but then it feels like you have nothing to watch, and movies are getting pushed to 2021, but there's not any shortage of movies to watch on Criterion Channel or any other of these services, and it's just all hitting you at once. And then the thing is, is that you look up, and you're still in the fucking heat wave. You know what I mean? And it's worse than just a heat wave. It's like it's a very stressful, um, anxiety-producing time. And, you know, as, as we're in Los Angeles, there's just still fucking fires here. There's still The air quality is still shit. Like... Mm-hmm. I, I definitely know what you mean. It's And it's, I think, exacerbated by the fact that, like, when you're watching a show, you really have to, like, teach yourself not to look at your phone. You know, you really mm-hmm. have to teach yourself that, like, you're not going to miss anything in the 60 minutes you spend watching the boys. The show takes it, they, they ride the speed limit on this show. You know what I mean? And sometimes it, it's going to go off the road a little bit. And when it does, it's going to go off kind of hard. I wasn't, like, appalled by anything in it. I thought, you know, the, the, we talked about this with Utopia, too. It, there is a degree of, casualness and I don't know would you call it cynicism in relation to like the people who are on the show and for as much as you might like you know Starlight or Huey or even Mother's Milk or any of these other characters they are crash test dummies you know and they are going to get thrown around a lot and sometimes their heads are going to explode and to watch something and not feel it's not about liking people or not it's not feeling attached at all or emotionally mm-hmm. invested in it at all Sometimes it can be a lot. Yeah, and, I, and I, I, I want to be careful too because I think for people who are listening to us talk about this who like the show along with us or because of us or even people who, who work on the show listen to us, like I, I really want to be cognizant of my own personal reaction to it because I think some of the things that I bumped on in this week's episode are things that basically I've praised it for in the past. And you know, if you have a drinking game for every time I say old-fashioned storytelling values or whatever when talking about the boys, <laughs> yeah, break out the whiskey. Because the thing that, one of the things that rankled me this week was the idea that Butcher and Homelander were more alike than you realize because they had bad father figures in their sure. lives. Yeah, That's storytelling 101. Like, that's smart. Humanize the villain, you villainize, you humanize the villain, you villainize the human, you know, and you find out everybody's a little bit Nobody's just one thing. Everybody's a little bit mixed up inside. You know, and it's just a it's a smart B or C plot to a show that's generally about punching and heads exploding. But I bumped on it, you know, because Butcher is so over the top in performance and in the way he's been created. And Homelander now, you know, is like Stormfront, a Nazi. 
and an omnipotent Nazi mm-hmm. who rips a child away from his mother and lets planes crash. And so I know that telling that story. The letting the is plane doing crash the, part is like, it feels kind of like one of his minor offenses at this at point. At this point. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I, I understand that it's the job of the writers to edge the show into places that are uncomfortable. And I respect that. I would, I, I'm, I'd rather them do that, you know, than try to uh, just say it's just, guys, it's just punching. You know what I mean? But it, it, it was tough. It was tough to take. And, and the reason I was going to, I thought if we were going to do Good Lord Bird afterwards was that there felt like a, there was a, a heavier weight at the heart of that show Mm -hmm. And the way that they're approaching issues. No one should compare these two things. I I get it. But we do a podcast, so we're going to. Yeah, we're also watching them at the same time, so too bad. The way way that it engaged with issues of life or death felt like there was more of a there there, you know? And and one of the things that I also admire about the boys from time to time is that it doesn't get hung up on logistics too much, because I think that could sink it. And, And yet, when I'm already kind of iffy about the violence, that's when I start to say... So they can just walk into the most protected building in the world and then walk out of it. Like they should be able to do that because who actually wants to see them stopped by security on fourth floor on mm-hmm. the way out? No, you want to get on with it. You only have eight episodes in a season. But well, once you I think start that that bumping, might be it's an hard exhaustion to stop with quest based storytelling where it just feels like that that might have happened two or three times this season. There's also something, something that like I th- that. I agree. Against all odds, we did this and. Right when we thought we were going to get away with it, one yeah. thing went wrong that creates another quest that we have to do. And but like, this is a show that went, fl- they drove a speedboat into a whale. I mean, like, we've kind of passed true. the point of. And, and they hang a lantern on it where Homelander's like, I think we should kill Starlight. And he's like, but I guess it'll be worth it if I can kill Huey. I'm like, okay. You, po- you called attention to the fact that you left her alive like a Bond villain, but right. you still had to. The other thing about the show is that it clearly loves being loves being bad. You know, there's a little bit of like the walking dead to it where it's like, nobody's safe. So, you know, you, you keep bringing in actors and having their heads explode. Um, yeah. and, or, or, or you have shouts to Sean Ashmore, who I haven't seen since he was Iceman in the Brian Singer X-Men movies. What a two episode run by him. Um, <laughs> but then they, then he, then he burns himself up because there's just more stuff to do. And so look, I, I'm dreading in some level seeing the finale. Cause I think it's going to be even, more over the top, right? But I, but I also wonder how much of this is me. You didn't, you didn't have you, you, you. It was business as usual, straight through the heart of the whale for you. I mean, I, I, I it's strange to just. I mean, like, I, I, if I, if you describe the show to anybody who doesn't watch it, they would probably wonder what you were doing with your life. You know, if you were like, <laughs> oh yeah, and then like they're at the end of the episode, um, yeah. a dozen people's heads explode and blood sprays everywhere. And there's this Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez character who just gets swathed in head blood. I mean, yeah. if I w- explain this, to- I'm sure Kaya is just like blinking as we talk about it. So it's strange to be like, it didn't bother me or it didn't really raise my temperature at all. But that was only because I think I've learned to accept this show for what it is. But mm. like you, yeah, like I think that it's hard sometimes to be like, you know, this, this show really has a heart, though. That's the thing. It doesn't. You know what I mean? And I think if, you, if you're okay with that, the show is, is much more But I think it successful. wants to. And I think that that's yeah. why I ended up liking it more. And now I'm back a little bit to where I was after You're back to the, the guy who, who watched the first 20 seconds and we're like, get yeah. this shit the fuck out of here. I mean, no, because I, I really enjoy the show. So I'm going to keep watching it. But, but yeah, I mean, look, we'll have further updates for you on the situation yeah. on Thursday's episode of Snowflake Central. Greenwald and I have to go watch 12 hours of the third day uh, yeah. uh, 
production. We didn't, we'll, we'll talk about that on Thursday. You didn't wake up at 1.30 to watch the live stream, baby? I didn't. I didn't. I just... I, I, I saw... <laughs> I, I shared with Chris one piece of information, which was that this 12-hour live stream, apparently, for one of its 12 hours, was just a bearded Jude Law digging a ditch. He also took a nap. He took a nap in the, in the show. I've never respected something more. That's amazing. So we're going to come back after a quick break and have my conversation with Brian and Musa from Stadio about All or Nothing Tottenham. And I hope you guys like football because we talk a lot about it. Thanks for joining us this week. Andy, I'll talk to you on Thursday. Great job, Francie. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I'm so excited to be joined by Muso Kwanga and Ryan Hunt from Stadio on Ringer FC. It's our football podcast on the Ringer, but these guys, I think it might be one of my favorite podcasts full stop. And it's such a great pleasure to have them on the watch today to talk oh. about one of my favorite shows of the year <laughs> against all odds. It's all or nothing. Tottenham Hotspur. It's this docuseries that's on Amazon Prime. I've talked about it before with Andy and he nods. He nods and he just sort of says, okay. And he stares at a point in my forehead and waits for me to stop talking. I needed to talk about this show. And I couldn't think of uh, two better people to do it with. Musa and Ryan, what's up, guys? So good. Thank you for having us. Oh, ah, thank you. So, thanks so much for joining. 
Oh man, I am so hyped about talking about this show. So <laughs> yeah, too. I, I want to like kind of keep the handbrake on for a second because there's Aww. a slight possibility that there are like seven people still listening to this part of the interview who don't know who Tottenham is and are just curious about what we're talking about. But I, I just want to just briefly explain. So what this is, is essentially like a hard knocks. It is a, a behind the scenes fly on the wall documentary about a Premier League club. But it's not just any club. It's Tottenham Hotspur, the sort of... Am I going to get in trouble if I say the sort of little brother club of North London? Don't say that. I don't say that. <laughs> 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 Let's just say AR Club in North London. They have a rivalry with Arsenal, who uh, are the other big North London club. And this was supposed to just be a peek into their season, coming off of a huge, huge 2000... I guess uh, 18, 19. I'm completely confused about when seasons happen now. So when was mm. the Champions League season was 18, 19. This 19, 20 was supposed to be uh, the, the season that they did with All or Nothing. And they had gone to the Champions League, League final. They had this brilliant manager named Mauricio Pochettino. They have this uh, England national team striker named Harry Kane. They've got all these great players. We're going to talk about them much more familiarly, familiarly in a second, but just to set it up. And then everything goes wrong. Poch gets fired. They bring in the anti-hero, the Walter <laughs> White of the Premier League, Jose Mourinho. And then COVID strikes and the season is upended. And it's just this amazing portrait of a bunch of people dealing with enormous, extraordinary circumstances, which is, I think makes for great television. Ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances is like what, what, what you want and when, you're, when, you're, mm. when you're reading, when you're watching a film and you're watching television. For you guys, and I, I'll start with Musa. Are you able to watch this as TV and separate it from your also, you know, obsession with and professional obligation to cover football as a sport? I thought not at the very beginning, but by the end, I was able to sort of step back and dissect it because it becomes great drama. And weirdly enough, it's the power of propaganda. It's that whole thing about if you repeat something enough times, it becomes reasonable and at the start of the series, I start off thinking this is a clown show. And by the very end of it, I had a more nuanced take on it. I was much more, I think, benevolent towards a lot of the protagonists involved. Unpleasant as a couple of them consistently were, sure. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, what about you? Um, the first time I watched it, it was very much just like, where's the popcorn? Give me more popcorn. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what do you mean? There's only three episodes at a time. I need all nine now kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I did a bit of a rewatch of certain episodes and it's really weird how, how much the dust almost settles on a little bit of a rewatch. And you can really see how, in terms of a piece of TV, how carefully constructed it actually is. Because you know, because we're familiar with the, with the storyline and the timeline, because obviously we lived through it in real time covering football with Stadio prior to our ringer days. And, um, but watching it again, you really see how, like at first, for example, I don't know how far you want to skip here, but at first you see how they've condensed one bit into the beginning of episode one. You're like, wow, that's, they've done, they've, you know, they've gone through that really quick. Yeah. But then when you go back and rewatch that episode, it's like, huh, actually this is kind of like the beginning of, you know, like the beginning of Pixar movies. They always set up like, a, there's like a mini story before the story where you get really emotionally invested in a character that isn't going to be there for the actual main story because they'll either, it was like, you know, Nemo's mum or yeah. like... Uh, the dude's wife in Up yeah, and stuff like posh. that. It's like, yeah. yeah, basically Poch <laughs> is the dude's wife in Up of this show and they just get rid straight away and then it's on to the actual 
Can narrative. I be real? Can I be real? This is like if Jerry Krause had made The Last Dance. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a really big, yeah. So explain to people what you mean by that. Well, because Jerry Krause was the executive who believed that the organization was always bigger than the um, than the head coach, the mystical head coach. And you got the mystical head coach, Phil Jackson here, the mystical head coach of the Spurs was Pochettino. And the difference here is that in this timeline, in this alternate universe, where, you know, sort of, Daniel Levy, the exact, the kind of Joe Krause figure here, held the redundancy stone and clicked his fingers. He got rid of Poch and got to write his version of history. He got to get rid of the main guy and kind of say, I'm bigger. Like Joe Krause was like, I'm bigger than Phil Jackson. And Daniel Levy was like, I'm bigger than Pochettino. Get rid of him, get my person in. And this is kind of, this is the legacy of what happens when one executive in an organization, I think, thinks they're bigger than everything else mm -hmm. and imposes their own vision. And I think actually with kind of disastrously average results, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that he took Spurs from being a truly great prospect into a solidly seven and a half out of 10 organization. And I left this show completely respecting Daniel Lever's business skills. Like, you know, you really respect the fact this man has balanced the books and he's a sane executive in a world that is often hopelessly idealistic. But I think that running a football club is an art as much as is a science. And I think that you see this documentary that he forgets that it's an art, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the entire premise of this doc is that when you watch Hard Knocks, the NFL documentaries, those are usually set in the training camps before the season. So there's really not that much consequence. There's, there's some storylines about, will this guy get cut or this guy got hurt or the coach and, and the players are getting along or not getting along. Maybe there's a shoving match but then the season starts and the documentary's over. Mm. And then th there's a few uh, football club documentaries, like the Juventus one on Netflix, which is essentially just an excuse to check out the apartments of Northern Italian professional football players. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly... Juventus usually wins Serie A, and like, there's, there's not a ton going on there. This was fascinating because I don't know what they thought was going to happen when they agreed to do this, when they agreed to make All or Nothing. Obviously, they couldn't have predicted COVID, but I think in the, there's, a, there's a world in which they finish third, maybe even second. Podge is killing it. They've, everybody's going all guns, and it's, it's, and it's a great advertisement for their new stadium, and come to North London, you'll love it. Check it out. And by the end of it, I, I just keep thinking about that scene towards the end of this, of this season where it's Tangai and Dombele and Levy sitting in that room together and Levy is trying to convince him to give it another go at Tottenham and using his story of, I, I was going to drop out of school, but I didn't and instead became a great student. So you should, you should really put your head down and like get after it. And this to your point was about the Jerry Krause. I'm just like, why is this scene in here? What are yeah. we doing? What is the, what is Tottenham trying to project by having, by having Jose essentially just yelling at his medical staff the entire season <laughs> and Daniel Levy trying to convince French international superstar midfielders that his school experience somehow informs <laughs> how they're playing. <laughs> I mean, that, was, that was the bit actually that made me feel the, the most uncomfortable of the entire That was series, the most actually. curb your enthusiasm moment of the entire... Yeah. I, I didn't even think it was curb actually because I, I, I didn't actually think... I didn't actually think it was curb because I thought it was a little bit more bleak. I thought yeah. there was... It, it felt really... It, not sinister because that's a little bit over the top but it felt very much like... I don't know. 
you could not have two different upbringings, you know, and two different scenarios. (laughs) And it was like talking via the translator and he's like, he needs to know. And it was just a bit like, "Mm, I don't know, actually. (laughs) I don't don't really know about this. Do you think the translator gave an accurate... Or was he like, I'm going to... Audible on this one. <laughs> just kind of I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think Daniel just don't say everything works out for you. Do you know what it was like? Can I be really bleak? This is a reference that people might not get, but I'll throw it in anyway. It's like the scene towards the end of Snowpiercer when Chris Evans gets to the front. <laughs> oh when he gets to the front of the train and the guy at the front is like, this is why I've been conducting this experiment. <laughs> so the train can continue. And they're just so far apart in terms of their privilege, right? Uh, yeah. And I think weirdly enough, that scene was foreshadowed because it's the most grotesque scene, I think, in many ways of the entire documentary. But there's hints of it that the whole way along because you know i said on twitter like when i first started watching it i think this show got made in many respects because daniel levy felt misunderstood mm-hmm. and i think for better or worse he is understood far too well by the very end and you keep seeing him at various points of the kind of movie like but it is a kind of movie really there's like bits of him when he's just he's just there and he shouldn't be there's like yeah. set pieces where he's like walking along looking purposeful he's and just it's always in like, the canteen he's just hanging yes, out yeah. no one's sitting with him the yeah. first episode has some of the best <laughs> Levy moments of the entire series. So like literally the first thing is just him saying, he, he is the first character that comes in it. The first, you know, person you are <laughs> learning about as a character. If you, if you knew nothing about this from a sporting perspective and you were looking at it purely in a dramatical sense, you're like, okay, the show is about this guy. Because he's the very first person in the very ah, first ah. scene at the very center who you're learning about, you know, and then... Afterwards, it quickly shapes to enemies. Ericsson wants to leave. The focus mm-hmm. is on Christian Ericsson. Mm-hmm. And then Pochettino, is, he wants more control. You know, the, and then it cuts to Poch saying, you know, I need to n- know more about what my job is and all this, this kind of stuff. So it's framed really easily in that early thing. It's just like, okay, these are two guys who are threatening the legacy of Daniel Levy. Yes. If I was watching it without any knowledge about the sporting aspect at all. But then the weird thing is, is that it's like, if I was looking at it, this from a purely like critic, if this is an actual piece of fictional drama, I'd be like, well, what are you trying to tell us about him? Really? Because it's like he fires Poch after what, like 20 minutes of the show. And the scene is him sat on a table in the canteen, which is completely dark apart from the overhead lights on him, like he's just put a hit out on someone in, a, in like a, in a mafia movie. But then he, earlier on, he was like, Poch comes into this like event at the stadium or something. And he does this, yeah. there's loads of just like really accidental partridge moments where he's like, oh, you look smart, cashmere. Yeah. N- nice sweater, you know, it's like, yeah. What are you talking about? Like, what are you? Are you, you know... And then he and says, "Did he, he say something like, about we've gone away together? Like we've gone on vacation yeah, together? We had some fun times away from the club." Is these exact words, which I was just like, hmm, "Okay." <laughs> and there's a great moment when he's talking to Mourinho about something over like lunch, and Mourinho clearly just wants to like eat his lunch. Yes, and he says Mourinho says the same thing like two or three times. He says the same thing, and Mourinho's like, "Yeah, like one word answers, yeah, yeah." And I was yeah. like, "How many takes of that did you had to do? Because yes. there's no natural, there's no natural chemistry actually between the two of them." And the weird thing about Mourinho as well is he looks, um, I don't know, here's the thing. I don't know how coaches transmit aura and maybe it's lost some of it, but I'm pretty sure that when I was watching the last dance, I got a sense of Phil Jackson's aura 
even mm-hmm. from a two-dimensional setting. And watching Mourinho give those talks at half time and like try to rouse people, there was no point at which I thought I would follow this man into battle. There was no point. There was no sense of like, and I'm not just saying that to be harsh. I'm like, you know, because we've seen Mourinho give press conferences and he's absolutely magnetic. I didn't see a single scene where I looked at Mourinho and thought, oh my goodness, this man is a world beater. Yeah. Well, this is, what I wanted to, this is what I wanted to talk about is that watching Jose Mourinho in this show put me in touch with my own mortality because oh my goodness. Oh I my remember goodness. being- it took you that long, Chris. Jose Mourinho and all or nothing. Not COVID, not anything else, just Jose Mourinho. Out of everything else that's been going yeah. on, it was all or nothing. I remember falling in love with football in the early 2000s, really with European football. And he was an incredible character in that story. As you know, as I, as I really started to really fall for Liverpool and then just sort of read more about the game and was reading The Guardian every day and watching it whenever I could on cable. And his presence loomed so large over the sport in that first decade of the 2000s, especially obviously that second half of that decade and into, into when he went to Real Madrid. And I was, you know, obviously intimidated by him, but I, I was just like, this guy's probably going to dominate this sport. For the for for most of my life, like I can't imagine a world in which he is not one of the best managers. He's infuriating. He's always seems to be working the refs, both literally and metaphorically. You know, he, he, the, I remember watching Inter play Barca and just be like, oh, "That's it, sports over." They, 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 he fi- figured it out. And obviously, like like all of us, at certain points, he's he's hit a bit of a a peak and a decline. But mm. watching him shuffle around with a a purple polo shirt with a purple sweater kind of tied over his shoulders. Oh my gosh. And just going up to guys and being like, come on, fucking do it. Come on. <laughs> oh, come there's on. A, there's, a f- there's a few things about that. When he when he turns up and it's it's the scene where it's one of the hidden cameras or the placed cameras, if you like. Where just watching him unpack his stuff into yes. an office. Yes. I was like, huh. And the thing that really <laughs> struck me that I have a lot of questions about actually, there's a ruler in there with the letters in you know that you have at school that you can just like oh, pencil in the letters I'm like why oh, is that no. in there <laughs> oh no what is what is a guy who's won what two Champions Leagues won the Premier League three times why does he have a stencil ruler Do, th- Ryan okay, this is a brilliant point Ryan you've made Do you remember like Mourinho had this thing he had a dossier and no one ever got to see inside the dossier right and there was this whole myth about it, and he let us see too much we should not be seeing the inside of his pencil case this reminds me of this scene from is it Sopranos when the guy goes up to Tony Soprano and says Don doesn't wear shorts a Don doesn't wear shorts and he's there wearing purple yeah. like a Don doesn't wear purple we're not meant to see you in leisure wear well, you should be in Prince, suits Prince wants a word <laughs> like no no yeah but, but, you know, but yeah but like but in that context of like yeah yeah yeah, but there's a good point. Prince was never seen outside. Like he was, Prince would go to hardware stores wearing suits, right? <laughs> He'd play basketball wearing a frilly shirt. Like Prince was always in character. And this to me is like, you know, like some people, like you look at like Paul Newman, Paul Newman basically in Road to Perdition looks even more gangster than ever when he's old. Mm-hmm. But I look at Mourinho and I think of like, I think of Eminem now. It's like, yeah, you, you don't, you don't realize- comp you don't realize how much of Mourinho was angry young man in the same way that Eminem is still capable of that classic performance every now and again, just when you think he hasn't got it in him. Like when Machine Gun Kelly came for him and Eminem dropped that incredible track, the kill shot or whatever. Mourinho can do a kill shot every now and again, but those, those uh, performances are rapidly diminishing in, in frequency, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Didn't we, didn't we once describe him on Stadio as like the, 
you know, like when the Star Wars reboot happened and Han, Han Solo is now like some kind of intergalactic smuggler, but he's still got like one, he's got one yes. last battle in him. He can, he's, <laughs> he's handy. You'd still, you'd still weirdly kind of want him as part of the squad, potentially. Yes. If you were going to have to ha- have to actually go to war. Absolutely. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, this sort of goes back to my first question where it's like, he's incredible television, but I don't think that this was good for Tottenham's recruitment draw chances that it's not good for the club, but it was great for the the few weeks that we got to enjoy the show. I, I don't know. It's weird. At fir- I thought about it first, but towards the end, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this is perfect for Gareth Bale because it is so obviously addressing him in a club in need of a savior. Sure. So it attracts a very particular type of individual. I don't think it's great for, it's great for youth talent. It's great for like a really, really a play at the very start of their career. And at the very end, it is not a great place for a mid career elite footballer who wants to come in and basically like win now, because that's not going to happen for four or five years. It's perfect for Gareth Bale four champions leagues, come in, be the third player in the front three and be the savior in a disjointed attack. And it's perfect for, no, Yafet Tanganga making as well as a young defender, yeah. but for the kind of middle, the mid-career elite player, it to me it's not the one. If that makes I wanna, sense. I want to ask you guys two more questions. One is I, I need to address the the Tom Hardy in the room. Well, <laughs> huge Tom Hardy fans. Oh my god! Um, oh my in god. some ways, it's his most straightforward performance in five or six years. It's just being charming and straight. You know, he's just reading what he's got on the page. <laughs> Do you think Tom Hardy ever looked up at the producers of All or Nothing and said, you really want me to say this bit about fourth place again? <laughs> <laughs> you merely adopted the Champions League. I was born. Oh, God. <laughs> because the entire, they need to create like a dramatic a quest in this show. All stories need a quest. Their quest is to finish fourth. It becomes... Yeah. First of all, because we lived through it, we knew we know that that's not going to happen. But second of all, it just becomes readily apparent that this club is not going to qualify for the Champions League. And he oh is God. still saying, should Tottenham beat West Ham, they could <laughs> possibly get within five points of fifth, which would leave them one place beyond fourth and the Champions League. And yeah, it's honest. Yeah, I was, I was like, shut up, Tom. I just want to hear Mourinho say balls again. It's like yes. the two words that he just said all season. Like he has an obsession with the word man. An obsession with the word balls. And yeah, it was just come like, on, man. Yeah. Yeah. Man, man, man. And it was like, yeah, shut up, Tom. Like, no one cares. It kind of like going back to the up analogy, because they celebrate winning, they celebrate qualifying for the Europa League at the very end. That's the final kind yeah. of episode, right? That is the ultimate outcome. It's like going back to the up analogy that I used at the beginning, if you're going to continue it, it'd be like the guy making it all the way there, going down just before the actual bit that he wants the house on, and then them all celebrating anyway. It's just like, well, you didn't actually, really do it. Like, I, th- you know I, mean? I, think like I think it's amazing. I think it's actually a stroke of genius because actually we're talking about videos and like and analogies. It reminds me of that. And there's a very famous BBC uh, nature video where you've got, I think it's like a deer climbing the dam to get a bit of salt at the very top and it's being narrated. And it's like, I listened to it's like, it's pure anthropology because of Tom Hardy's like slightly detached narration. It's so bizarre that it's actually, it's like, it's like Gary Larson almost. Yeah. Does that make sense? And it, yeah. it becomes a kind of like incredibly deadpan, observational, tragic comedy. Cause it's deep. And actually the, the one thing that's really powerful, I think in all of it is it really hits home how human these footballers are, mm-hmm. how they're just assets. I think some of the most moving parts, genuinely moving when Christian Eriksen just wants to leave 
And he's like, I'm going to be the fall guy. And I don't care who's filming this. I need to get out of here. And when Danny Rose is saying, I want to move, has AC Milan come in for me? And Christian Eriksen is trying to leave. And there's that really nasty bit where Daniel Levy is basically going, do you know what? We haven't got that many offers for you. Yeah. We haven't got much. And I thought that is so nasty. This guy has been here for five years. And yes, he was inconsistent at times, but fundamentally Christian Eriksen transformed the fate of that club and was behind some of their greatest moments. And you're sitting here in a meeting that you know is being filmed, knowing that people that don't know the context will be like, actually, you're just some random guy we're going to bin off. And you wouldn't have thought from that You scene, thought you were Christian better Erickson. than us and it turns out nobody wants you. And yeah. it's so it's so nasty the way he does that. And you can just see Ericsson, you think to yourself, you know what, this is... um. This is gratuitous cruelty. And I really hope people clock that from Lee because it's nasty, actually. Yeah. Think mm. about the fact that Christian yeah, yeah. Eriksen chose to play for Antonio Conte <laughs> instead, instead of staying with Hey, Daniel. the couch whisperer, man. <laughs> said it. Um, but, but Chris, going back to what you were saying before about the Tom Hardy thing, I, don't, I think in terms of his narration, I think he's just, he's just down. He just strikes me as someone who's just like down to do stuff. I don't know if, you, if it crossed over there, but he did a series of... BBC bedtime stories for children. Yeah. Where he was just I, did, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And just he just seems like, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah, this is actually quite well, fun. This seems you know, to it's be like the places where he does his most sort of normal performance is in the, the, the those kinds of things. It's yeah, when yeah. he's asked to be Bane or or be on taboo where you're just like, what is happening, man? Yeah, I was kind of hoping for a taboo voice, to be honest. I would have really liked the whole thing to have been or peaky blinders, you know, peaky yeah. blinders is even more extreme. Yeah. But do you know what it reminded me of? I don't know if, if you guys have ever seen the the 1982 official World Cup documentary in Spain. So basically, they I, they used to do, I think, if, I'm not sure if they still do them, but they used to do like official documentaries for each World Cup, which would basically just plan it, like play it out from start to the end with narration through it. But the 1982 one in Spain is narrated by Sean Connery and the, and Rick Wakeman did the soundtrack. Oh my it's God. like one of the most amazing things. It was <laughs> on like, like, there was a series uh, uh, years ago, I think, they were playing them all back to back on like Sky Arts or something like that in the UK. And it was on at 4am and we just happened, me and my old flatmate just happened to catch it. But it was kind of, I was thinking there hasn't really been a sporting documentary like that set in the UK at least, or with yeah. a UK actor of that profile and the rating like since maybe, maybe in the US. But I was, it was, I was thinking about it. I was like, Sean Connery narrating a documentary about the 1982 World Cup is kind of baller. But Tom it's Hardy no, is incredible. I think Tom this is Hardy gonna... is a bit of a catch. He was like arguably like Spurs' Huge. biggest signing for a while. Yeah, getting Tom Hardy I, to do it. I think the profile of this is going. I think the resonances will grow over time. I think it's such a slow burn because I really got into it more and more. And I know this sounds slightly ridiculous, but I would still absolutely kill to have Tom Hardy playing Bane doing commentary over like Atleti, like a, just a five minute highlight video of Atleti sure. season, but just him to be completely in character the entire time, I think would just sound incredible. If they do I, season two of All or Nothing Tottenham Hotspur, I'd actually like them to add Bane as a character. Just let him wander about, just let him wander about the, the, the training ground. You Can know, you with imagine the, like, the, the hand on the showing shoulder. up at, at Harry Kane's gender reveal party for his child? <laughs> <laughs> just you, blowing you the balloons You adopted before. the dog. <laughs> yeah, it would just be incredible. Well, All right, the, before, here's the new centre-back. Here's the new centre-back. No, before I, he, he would do great for Tongan replacement. Um, I, before I let you go, I wanted to ask a couple of quickfire questions. So this is a br really more about the the players we get to, to meet. I wanted to ask each of you, which player after watching All or Nothing would you want to share a meal with? Who did you say, you know what, that guy seems like he would be a great, great hang. I've got two. I've got a serious one and a jokey one. 
Serious one is Jan Vertonghen, although he's now left. Well, A, because he's now left to, but for Benfica, which means that I would probably have to go to Lisbon to see him. Tough. So, That's a tough beat. <laughs> and the food in Lisbon is dreadful, obviously. It's, <laughs> oh, it, it's unbelievable. The second one is Deli Ali, because he just seems like no matter what you give him, it would blow his mind. Yes. So you could just take him somewhere. You could just take him somewhere and just be like, "You could take him to Predomage and he would just be yeah, like, "What like, is dude, this?" Like he can come. He can come to Berlin. We can go to any falafel spot, and he would just be like, "Oh wow, this is amazing." Yeah, the deli beans you know? moment is is really quite something. Musa, what about you? That's funny because those were actually my choices. But to be <laughs> interested, no, they were actually we should do a but podcast I together. <laughs> <laughs> I will go with um, Toby Aldevaro because I think he would just have all the stories. And there was a really lovely moment where he gets that contract and everyone's really happy for him. And they're like, oh, you got the money now. And like, everyone was just really, he'd done so well for the club and he got rewarded. And his family was so happy. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'd like to sort of go for a quiet meal with him. He's like a good dude. Him and the family mm. would be quite nice, I think. Yeah. I would probably go for myself with Musa Sissoko. I loved that. Ooh, um, nice. I loved that little drinks tray that he brings out to Serge Aurier and, and Tangaio. It's like seems like he's a great host. Yeah. Uh, who I don't know how to phrase this because I have an answer that I want to give, but I, I guess my question is: Who would you want getting your back in a in a whether it was in a fight, whether it was just no question, a, no question. <laughs> okay, who's this? Eric Dyer. Eric Dyer. I was going to yeah. Here's that the problem. Here's the problem. <laughs> Let's say you you know you're walking out of a pub or a bar or whatever, or something happens. Eric Dyer's with you, and it seems like something's about to set off. Eric Dyer will probably be like great up until the point where he radically escalates the situation unnecessarily. <laughs> Whether it's I mean, this is a guy who ran into the stands, he he obviously has just got like a real gentle giant thing until he snaps, and then it's kind of like did you guys see Eric Dyer ran into the stands? But you guys both agree with the big Dyer. Yeah, because he's got big anti-fat energy. You need to preempt <laughs> it. You need to preempt it. Like, listen, sometimes, sorry, sometimes you need, you need to like cast the first stone sometimes. And that's the thing. He'd be that guy. If there was a standoff, he'd be like, are we doing this? Yeah. Are we going to do this? And then like, everyone would be like, hey, do you know Eric? Do you know Eric? You know, it's not even that. It's not that deep. Like, oh, cool, cool. And then actually it's like, you know what, Eric, you're right. Like you're a bit spiky. You almost need that person to be like, oh, oh you're the peacemaker. No, I'm not about that life. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the I peacemaker. I, I, think, I think Eric Dyer's got that. He can sense it though. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, you're about to walk into a pub and he just stops you and he's just like, nah. I can't go nah, in nah, here. Nah, nah, yeah, there's, yeah. Something, yeah. there's something not right about this place. And then you come past it two hours later and the, the police fans are there and it's all kicking off and he was just like, told you. Exactly, exactly. Like, you'd be like, do you really want this, Ryan? Do you really want this? Because if you want, if you'd want this, we're doing this, but are you sure you want to do this? Yes. <laughs> Who is the player that you would least like sharing like a, a close office quarters with? Like you would least like being like trapped at the desk opposite blank. Oh my God, this is actually okay. Can I be honest? Lucas Moura because of his politics. Yes, <laughs> well, that's a totally valid. That's Sorry. a totally valid point. Yeah. Sorry. So Lucas Moura, Ryan, what would you say? <laughs> Harry Winks, hundred percent. Harry Winks. Well, oh really? Yeah, I think he's. I think he comes across actually like a really nice guy, but he's just. He just strikes me as someone who just constantly be asking if you saw stuff. Oh, have you seen this? <laughs> have you read this? Have you done this? And I'm just like Harry, man. I've got like a lot of deadline. Leave me alone. Like he just yeah. seems really. There was that bit where they come into training and the and the things on Sky. They've got the TV on in the canteen about Jose taking over, and he just says this, the most amazing things. He goes, "I've never seen coverage like it. It's on Sky Sports News, Instagram, 
and the Daily Mail. I, I feel like that was fake news. I feel like they staged that one scene in particular. It just seems think? like he's like, we're all over Twitter. And it's like, no one ever says that. He's he's also got that kind of energy of like that guy who's like, oh my God, wow, you won't believe this match that I got on Tinder. And I'm like, you're Harry Winks. Like, of course. Oh, wow, wow. Look at this. Look at this. <laughs> I actually think he's, he's he, the reason I say that is because I actually think he's probably too nice. It's like, Harry, you only offered me a cup of tea five minutes ago. And I said, no. Like, yeah. Give me like yeah. at least half an hour <laughs> before you come back. Yeah. I would yeah. probably go Kane, Harry Kane, because I just feel like you'd be like, I don't know. I think I might go get a salad for lunch. Fucking come on, London Derby. Let's go, lads. <laughs> Three points. <laughs> yeah, can, I, can, I just, can I just raise the point here? I've, I, I, I don't think I've ever been so demotivated by a motivational speech. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Apart from, I mean, even Mourinho's ones like Moose and I play football. At, well, we we played, we have played football at a very low level, amateur level. But I was saying to him that the thing, the main difference between, I know that you got a rap, but I just wanted to say like the main difference between this and like the Manchester City one. So I think this is more entertaining than the Man City one. Oh yeah. Overall, but the the reason is that you know the Man City one was really interesting for seeing Pep drag Mikel Arteta back into the video room and try and figure this problem out you know, seeing the inner workings of Pep's mind. Whereas this, you know, if Mourinho was going to give the team I play for that kind of speech, I'd just be like, mm. Well, it's it's just such a fascinating portrait of all the different ways, not only to motivate a team, but to motivate people. Because that Pep, yeah. this, the Man City season is pretty cool, but it is also like, well, let's watch one of the greatest assemblies of professional athletes ever have one of the greatest seasons ever. And it's just kind of like, okay. But that scene where Pep gives the courage speech, where he's like, you have to play with courage. You know, like he yeah. really gets into it. And you're like, I'd run through a wall for this guy. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And then yeah. you think about Mourinho walking around and needing to write everything down before he says it because he, he'll forget otherwise. And then he kind of ambles out in front of them and he's just like, you sucked you sucked, you sucked, you all sucked. And like, let's pray that we can keep a clean sheet against Burnley. Like, it's that- like watching Michael Jordan play at the Wizards. <laughs> yes. yes. No, it is. I'm sorry, because you look at like Zidane, there's an amazing um, scene. It's a 2017 uh, Champions League semi um, final at half time, And Zidane basically stands there just waiting for the players to come in. And then just like, stands in the middle of the room, gives a very quick team talk and that's it. And it's like, it's done. We're going to win this. And just takes all the pressure off the players. You're like, oh my God, that's the aura right there. Yeah. And the scary thing for me is this is the best version. This is the best footage that Spurs could produce. Right. It's the most inspirational footage they could produce of Levy. And like, it's fairly charitable to Levy and to Mourinho, but it's still like, where's the magic guys? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That is actually, that is, that is the perfect capstone. It's like, imagine what they didn't include. Yeah. Can I just say something though before, like, obviously we are a Liverpool fan, an Arsenal fan and a Manchester United fan talking about a Spurs documentary. So we're, journal- I wanna, we're journalists. I, we're, we're able to see things. Well, clear you eye. are. You two are. I just, I just do a podcast. Uh, I just, I wanted to say, I, I've said this to Spurs fans, friends of mine who are Spurs fans, is that after the year they had with, you know, they loved Poch. Like the, we mm-hmm. did a podcast, an emergency podcast when Poch got fired and a lot of Spurs fans reached out and were genuinely like thanks you kind of summed up what we thought about this and I just feel quite sorry for Spurs fans because I don't think it's dreadful but it doesn't it's not a, it doesn't make them look great it doesn't make them look 
like the club that they were looking like they were going to be under Pochettino at some point. And I think after the year that they had, especially losing Poch, which, you know, they all loved. Yeah, they, yeah, they were going through a rough patch and the football would, was becoming poor and their form was really poor, but no one had taken them to that height since. I mean, you know, this is a, this club won the first League and Cup double of the 20th century. It's yes. not a tiny, tiny football club. It's become a bit of a parody among a lot of other football fans, you know, in terms of the term Spursy and stuff like this. But this isn't a club that just all of a sudden started to do stuff in 2010. Right. And um, I think they showed real signs of getting... Sorry, not, not wanting to go too much down the sporting side for a no, bit. No, it's I think fine. That there's, I think that the way that we've tried to kind of handle it when we talked about it on the podcast a couple of times, or how I just like to talk about it in general, is that this could have been Arsenal and it could have been the same and it could have yes. been... Manchester United. And I, and I was just thinking, what would I be watching? How would I want to feel if I was watching this as an Arsenal fan, if it was Arsenal? And I'd be like, I just want people to have their fun, but just kind of go easy on me a bit because there's been yeah. a rough year. Yeah. Pre, you know, never mind COVID and everything that everyone else is going through for Spurs, it was been a pretty of a rough year. So yeah, I just feel more sorry for actually the fans that this got made and put out really, because I just don't think it's probably anything they wanted. And I wanted to say this as well. I know we're wrapping up, but I will just say this, like, look, it's an amazing job, Daniel Levy, getting a new stadium in place and all the rest of it. I just think they're deeply, deeply ungrateful because they could barely say Pochettino's name throughout that documentary. They could barely say his name. And there's one bit when the head of recruitment's going, oh my goodness, the amount, the quality of players we've been able to attract in the last five years. And that was due to Pochettino's brilliance. Mm -hmm. He made that a go-to place. Even even Jose Mourinho, sorry, man, even Jose Mourinho in the episode one, in the first or second training session, he's just like, I'm not Argentinian. He literally says those words. I'm not Argentinian. My yeah. name is Jose. And he says, Jose. now we play, now yeah. we play with high intensity as if like, okay, for those who listen to this podcast or NFL fans, Spurs basically had Baltimore Ravens and they had Ray Lewis era, Baltimore Ravens intensity when it came to defensive play. They were brutal. And for Mourinho to come out and be like, oh, we're playing with more intensity now. Spurs were perhaps at their peak, the most intense team in Europe at one point no, when it came to that. Mourinho made them, is making them dirty is what he, I mean, that is really the, it seems to be his aesthetic is, it's not, he's obviously critiquing them for not running hard enough or not going for second balls or not winning 50-50s or whatever. But essentially, his message is, this is as far as you can get playing pretty and nice. Yeah. You have to be, if he says it over and over again, he says you have to be bastards. And it, it, it's completely captivating. But you're like, imagine how you must feel sitting there and you're 20, 24, 25. And this guy comes in and he's like, tactical fouling. Basically, like, you got to go out there, let them know you're there, slow the game down, break the play up. We're not good enough to play people on their own terms. So we have to essentially cut folks down. It's a, it's a, must have been such a huge culture change there. Oh my God, I've got one quick, sorry, I know we're meant to be going to no, extra no, time. No, no, don't even worry about but it. One, one quick thought. I wonder how many players were Pochettino loyalists or sympathizers who criticized or pushed back on Mourinho and Levy and that stuff wasn't included. Yeah. I just wonder, I, mean, I, think, I wonder because, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I think their, their absence is noted by their lack of screen time. Basically. Yeah, I, w- I wonder how many of them said, actually, we did play with intensity before. We did counter press. We did all these things you're talking about. Under Poch, we did it like this, 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 this. And those people are marginalized because if you look at the people that, the interesting thing about this documentary is, who doesn't talk, because a lot of the team aren't natural talkers, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're not really, or they're diplomatic like Kane. I think Kane's actually most inspiring when he talks about his injury, weirdly mm-hmm. enough, when he kind of gets away from the kind of pulpit and just says, I don't think I'm worth tens of millions anymore because I'm injured. And you see the vulnerability there. But I just wonder how much of the pro poch stuff was edited out because you can't take a team to a Champions League final and not have people rooting for you once yeah. you've gone. I just don't believe it. Yeah. Sorry, Ryan. Lo Celso, man. He did you all of his Celso, talking yeah. in, that, in it, He did all of his talking in that very one scene when they're getting massaged and Deli Ali just goes, all right, then top three chocolate bars and it cuts to Lo Celso and his face. <laughs> it's just like, he didn't need to say anything. That was his entire, every line he needed to say throughout the entire series was in that one expression. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> so really real. And there's that. There's there's loads of little amazing bits like that that are just so memeable. Like, you know, Mourinho going full Godfather in episode two when he's talking about having to sacrifice Harry Winks for the sake of family. Yeah. You know, like he sat yeah. there in the corner. I have to with, pull Winks and put Dyer in so yeah. that so I, After the knife I stabbed in him, I have to sacrifice him for the sake, for the feeling of family. And it's just like, where are we? Uh, well, yeah. it was, it's a, it's a really, if you haven't had a chance to see it, obviously you should check it out. And it's just been, it's almost eerie watching Spurs now knowing all of this, having watched this season, now watching them go through this season. And you're just like, I can imagine what he's saying to them at halftime. I can imagine what he's saying them to him, to them after the game. Yeah. It feels like you kind of, I don't know. I don't, I'm trying to think of a, a PG metaphor here, but it feels like you've seen them doing something they probably didn't want you to seeing them do yeah put it that way and now you're kind of just watching them it's like you keep bumping into them in the hall like night how's it (laughs) going absolutely Absolutely. (laughs) guys thank you so much for joining me this was an absolute pleasure we got to do this again maybe we'll just talk about about british tv at some point or some uh, whatever you whatever you guys want to talk about it's been been lovely chatting bojack that's right there's really when it comes to Netflix, it's all over. Uh, Ryan and Musa, thank you so much for joining me. You can listen to Stadio on the Ringer FC feed on Mondays and Thursdays. I highly, highly recommend it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.